<laughs> Good morning, church, again. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ben. And um, yeah, um, we're doing, we're doing um, our series, which is Our Five Purposes. Um, and as you can see behind us, it's talking about the, our five purposes of community, discipleship, service, evangelism, and worship. And this is part five, so we actually covered most of it. So the, this is the, we come full circle. And as you can tell from Michelle's um, testimony, we're going to be talking about community and membership. And I've intentionally left this to kind of the last one, because it's actually probably the most difficult one, if we actually think about it. Because we all, as, as people, and people who have been in families, we, we all have an idea of what it is to be in community. We all have different ideas based on our culture, based on our background. Um, but I, I would like to take a look at what does it mean to have true biblical community? Because that can be quite different from our own ideas of community, doesn't it? You know? And I've called this, have we got my PowerPoint up? Right. Um, I've called this message, The Gang. So everyone's going, what? <laughs> um, yeah, but I'll explain it in a little bit. But um, you know what? We live, don't, we live in a time where people go to a building on Sunday mornings, don't we? And we attend a 75-minute service, and we call ourselves members of the church, don't we? Does it sound shocking to you? Of course not. This is perfectly normal. This is what we grew up with. I grew up in the church. That's what we do. We, all, we know all good Christians go to church, don't we? But have you ever read the New Testament? Do you find anything in Scripture that's even remotely close to the pattern that we have created? Do you find anyone who went to church? Try to imagine uh, the apostle Paul and Peter speaking like we do today. Hey, Peter, where do you go to church now? Oh, I go to New Hope. They have great music and I love the kids' program. Oh, cool. Can I check out your church next week? I'm not getting much from mine. Oh, totally. But I'm not going to be next, next Sunday because little Matthew has soccer. But how about the week after? Oh, sounds good. Hey, do they have a singles group? You know, because Peter was single. I mean, Paul was single. <laughs> it's funny to think of, of them speaking like that, right? Yet, it is a really normal conversation among Christians today. Why? There are so many things wrong with the above conversations that I don't even know where to start. The fact that we have reduced the sacred mystery of church to a 75-minute service that we attend is staggering. Yet, I defined it that way for years. Growing up in church, I didn't know any different. That's what everyone did. I didn't even think to, to question it. You know? So my first point is, let's go to gang. Everyone's like, what? And that's not, that's not about going to church? Have you, think about it this way. Has anyone been in a gang before? Anyone to admit that? No? Right? You're not in a gang. It's, the real estate gang is not a gang. <laughs> um, you know, for those of you who know, know some of my, my child stories, and my parents are here so they can verify it, um, I was a pretty naughty kid. <laughs> okay, I'm getting stares from my mother. Um, when I was in primary school, I was in a little primary school gang. You know, and and, and we we try, you know we, we thought it was cool when we were little. We we're like, yeah, we're going, we're all in a gang. And and I grew up in Singapore, and you know, Singapore's one of Singapore's values is democracy, right? So even in our gang, we elected our leaders. So you know, I I lasted a few weeks, and I got unelected because I wasn't a very good leader, apparently. <laughs> but um, you know, I I love history, like like a lot you know, and and when you actually l look at um. 
the origins of gangs, especially in, in Southeast Asia. They, they call it secret societies or triads. Um, and you know, you, you hear about triads in, in the movies, but when you actually look at the history of it, these triads form because migrants came over from China or India, and they, and they, they formed these gangs because they didn't have family around them. And actually start off with good intention. They, they wanted to have a close um connection with the people around them. Um, and they formed these, these secret societies and tribes, and obviously it escalated to you know, not so good stuff. But you know, to actually break a bond from a gang or to a tribe, it means, it means a death sentence. You know, because it's not just about a physical torture or death. They actually dread the rejection. Because if you leave a gang, you leave people who is your family, you know, and people who have looked out for you 24 hours, seven days a week, you know, and, and not only just lose, you actually be hated by them. You know, that's, that's the, the extent of, of what it is to be in the gang, you know. And I mean, you know, it's, it's you guys will go, oh, you're paralleling it pretty uh, extreme. But when you look at gang, it, it, a lot of it sounds like what church was meant to be. There's major differences, of course, you know, like drugs, murder, you know, little things like that. But, you know, the idea of being a family is central to, being, to both gang life and God's design for the church. While, yet, while we, we use family terminology in our churches, the stories I hear have convinced me that the gangs have a much stronger sense of what it means to be a family than we do in the church. From what you know about gangs, could you even imagine gang life being reduced to a weekly one-hour gathering? No group, would, no, no group would meet briefly for one week and say and call themselves a gang. Imagine one gang member walking up to another and saying, yo, how was gang? I had to miss this week because uh, life was crazy, man. We all know, know enough about gangs to know that that's ridiculous. Yet every week, we hear Christians asking each other, how was church? Something that God has designed to function as a family has been reduced to an optional weekly meeting. And this has become normal. Expected. And how did, in the world did we get here? Any gang member would tell you his homies have his back. They're there for him. They're loyal, they're committed, and they're present. Meanwhile, in many churches, you have as much a connection to the people who are supposed to be your spiritual family as you would to someone who you're going to the movie theater with. My next point is supernatural love. You know, it, is it just a nice cliche to say that the church is a family? Should be a family? I mean, it's a great thought, isn't it? But our biological families are our families, no? Does God really expect us to be this close with people we are not related to? people we won't even choose to be friends with. And I agree, it's natural to be close with your family and unnatural to experience this with people who are not like you, right? And that is exactly the point. It's not supposed to be natural. It's supernatural. Um, Joshua stole my verse, John 13, uh, 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples 
if you have love for one another. This verse we've grown up with, we, we, everyone knows it, one of the most famous verses. But I think sometimes if we get familiar with something, it, we, f- we forget what it truly means. Because one thing that the New Testament makes clear is that the church is supposed to be known for its love. Jesus said, our love for one another is the very thing that would attract the world. But can you name one single church in our country that is known for the way its members love one another? Because I can think of church that are known for excitement, powerful preaching, worship, production value. But can you name one church known for supernatural love? And a few weeks ago, um, Pat, came in, Pat Buckley came to talk to us about the one another ministry. The, fa- the phrase one another is mentioned over a hundred times in the New Testament. Love one another, care for, pray for, demolish. So why is it that we can't think of a single church that is known for the way they take care of one another? Because God clearly cares about this. Why don't we? Do we ask ourselves whether people would notice supernatural love when they walk into our gatherings? It's not that we are void of love. I mean, New Hope is a very friendly church, aren't we? But in all honesty, can we attribute that love in our midst to the Holy Spirit? Yes, we really enjoy being with one another. We have got some great small groups like Robin Gary that, that um, Michelle shared her testimony with. We even serve the poor in our, our area and around the world. We're a very nice and kind church and we've definitely experienced and witnessed some spirit-inspired acts of love. But that being the exception rather than norm, we're, not just, we're just not experiencing what we read in the Bible. We shouldn't be contented to just love people better than the church down the street. We should be looking for biblical love. Does our love feel too similar to the love we experience from co-workers and neighbors? Sometimes we are too quick to label our church experience as Christian love. Jesus made it clear, another verse that Joshua stole. Jesus made it clear that, that even sinners know how to love one another. Luke 6, 32 to 34. If you, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. I'm sure most of us have either worked in a, in a restaurant or joined a gym or bonded with other parents at our kids' sporting events. Is the love we experience in our church really that different? Because it's supposed to be. Jesus said in John 13:34, As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Our king, who allowed himself to be tortured and killed for us, tells us to love one another in the same way. That's tough. Have you ever considered loving a fellow Christian as sacrificially and selflessly as Christ loved you? Have, when was the last time you looked at a Christian brother or sister selflessly wanting to bring him or her life no matter the cost? Think of a few people 
in our church right now. Don't look around, it's too obvious. Just picture their face. Now, take a few minutes, do that. Two or three people. Now, think about the lengths that Jesus went to for these specific people to bring him to himself, uh, bring them to him. Think of the whippings he endured so that they could be forgiven. Imagine the way he thought of each of those people as he hung on the cross. No sacrifice was too great. There was nothing he would hold back. He did everything necessary to redeem and heal and transform these people you're thinking about right now. And he did the same for you. So ask yourself, who does God want you to pursue? Those people you, you thought about right now. Who could you desire to spend more time with? Because Jesus went to the ultimate extent for them. So why would you hold anything back? Jesus pursued these people from heaven to earth to bring them into his family. So what barriers could hold you back from pursuing a deeper family relationship with them? Because we have experienced the greatest love in the universe. So shouldn't that profound love flow out from us? Shouldn't that be enough to shock the world? John 1, 4, 7 to 12 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love comes from God. And who, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we may live through him. And this is love. So that we, not that we have loved God, but, he, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Do you catch that? Right there, there is a promise. A promise that if we love one another, God will abide in us and his love will be perfected in us. Is there anything in the world that you want more than that? Because if we want it, we should live like it. And, that, and if we don't live like it, that's what breaks God's heart. Because there is also a serious warning in the passage for those who don't love God. Those who don't love don't know God. What does it say about our churches? The importance of loving one another is emphasized throughout Scripture. And if, you, if you want to write this down, I haven't got out the screen. Romans 12, 9 to 10. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Oh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 13. Um, 1 Peter 4, 8. Go look at those scriptures. And there's many, many more. Because I can't help but feel that we're missing out on something extraordinary for, because of our lack of love. So that's supernatural love. The next point I want to make is supernatural unity. When Jesus was approaching the cross, he prayed a fascinating prayer. This prayer was for his disciples. But some of the statements should really challenge our faith. John 17, 20 to 23. I do not ask for these only, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know you have that, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And this verse is interesting. The author repeats himself many, many times. When and when a biblical author repeats himself, is to make a point. You know, and Jesus prayed that the unity of his followers will be equal to the oneness of the Father and the Son, the oneness of the Trinity. He wants you and me to be one, just as the Father and the Son are united. Have we ever considered pursuing this kind of unity with our church? Do you even believe this is possible? Let me keep going with this. Jesus' prayer was not that we would just get along and avoid church splits. You know, just a, a, a little story from my, my Bible college, my theological lecturer, he, first lecture, he gets up, introduction to theology. He's, he's a, I've, been, I've been a pastor before I became a, a lecturer. And, like, um, and I've been in ch- three church splits. And he goes, but it's not my fault, okay? <laughs> but um, but one, one really um, important observation that he got out of it is that it's never about Jesus. Church split's never about Jesus. And that, that was what took, um, you know, took me back. I was like, that's really interesting. Because if we, we prioritize unity, I'm not saying it would never be church splits, but you know, it's got to be on the important stuff. So Jesus' prayer, so let, let me continue this. Jesus' prayer was that, like I say, it was not only that we would get along and avoid church splits. His prayer was that we would become perfectly one. You know? And he prayed this because our oneness was designed to be the way that, to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus said that the purpose of our unity was so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. For some of us, this prayer doesn't make sense. How does our unity result in the world's belief? How, can that, how could seeing us love one another make someone believe that Jesus truly came from heaven? It feels like saying two plus two equals a thousand, right? But remember, the scripture is filled with impossible equations. Marching around a city seven times doesn't seem as if it would result in this wall collapsing, Jericho. But then it happened. Church unity doesn't seem as if it would result in people getting saved, but it actually did happen in Acts 2, 44 to 47. They were united, and the result was people being saved. Acts described the extent of their unity like this. Acts 4, 32, 35. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said, that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. There was not one needy person among them, 
for as many as were owners of land and houses sold, and sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. I don't know about you, but this passage always moves me. You know, we, we can often say that's the, that's the early church. It doesn't work today. But isn't there something about that that the church looks so beautiful and attractive? This is the kind of love that makes our message believable. Scripture is clear. There is a real connection between our unity and the believability of our message. If we, we are serious about winning the loss, we must be serious about pursuing unity. Philippians 1, 27 to 28 says, only let your, your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whenever I come and see you or, an, or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that of God. Okay, and I encourage you to go home and, and read these verses above and read them, read them a few times. Because note the promise at the end. Our fearless unity is a clear sign to those who opposes to, well, a clear sign to those who oppose Christians of their destruction. And it's true, we're living in a time where very few people believe in the wrath of God, don't we? Many preachers are afraid to even preach about it. But even the most evil per- people that we know have no fear of a literal judgment day. Have you ever tried to convince someone of their future destruction? It's not a simple task. Yet, Scripture tells us that our fearless unity will convince them. So when are we going to take these promises seriously and spend our energy seeking unity? Not just the kind of unity that we avoid arguments with one another, but the kind where we truly live together as a family, where we meet one another's needs and care for one another regardless of the time or the effort required. Unity doesn't come easy. You know, unity in, in church circles nowadays seems to be a buzzword. But think of everything it takes for a family to stay together, even just your own family. All the acts of service it requires, all the forgiveness and grace that must be constantly extended, all the times where one person's desire have to be lovingly set aside for the desires of others. This is real easy to talk about unity but it requires a kind of mutual commitment that is absent from our churches. If we're going to see this become a reality, we need to count the cost and decide whether we will commit. I know this doesn't come naturally to most of us who are happy with just a few close friends, but obedience often grates against our natural desires. That's why supernatural. If we obey only when it feels natural, then Jesus is not truly Lord of our lives. What often results from obedience, however, is unexpected blessing. When we start to experience true unity with our brothers and sisters, we will wonder how we ever live without it. 
you know, pushing the church to live as a family is not a gimmick. It's not some flavor of church we're trying. You know, it is commanded in the Bible. And it's offered. Crafting the church into a truly united and supernaturally loving family is the very thing God is wanting to do. We have to ask ourselves these questions. Do we truly believe that God is capable? Do we trust that his design for his church is, is what would be most effective? Because we can come up with countless strategies on how to reach the lost. But God promises that unity is the method that will work. Think about it. God gave us instructions on how to reach the world. Yet we abandoned that one set of instructions that he gave us even as we scramble to create classes, programs, and events that promote everything but the strategy God gave us. And just one last thought on, on unity, supernatural unity. You know, um, this quote by Jeff Bullock, who's the founding worship pastor of Hillsong. Like I said, unity is not about just avoiding con conflict or arguments with each other. Unity is, is, is uniting behind the vision of the house, the vision that God has given us, not, not a vision that even Pastor Ian gives us. You know, our, the vision of our church is straight from the Bible. But often, what hinders unity is encapsulated in this sentence. So many people want to build their vision in the house rather than building the vision of the house. And when you have, as Robert would know, if you have too many builders trying to lead building a house, you're going to be chaos, isn't it? Yeah, so think about that. Um, next point is, have we given up? When you read about the unity of the early church, does it make you jealous? For me, you know, something in me wishes I was born 2,000 years ago but probably not, no toilets here. <laughs> but, um, you know, you, can, you, you wish you could be a, a, a part of, you know, the church like in Acts, right? You can't get depressed, really, if you think about the, the reality, the, the realization that it's the very thing you always wanted, but you might not find it in today's church. And it's sad that, that our churches look nothing like what we see in Acts, and it's devastating that we don't believe it's possible. That's, at least that's my experience. Because what I, what I see today is many people choosing to opt out of church, claiming a continued love for Jesus. They have decided that the church only gets in their way. There's a sad time when those who want to be close to Jesus have given up on the church. There's a terrifying verse in First Timothy where Paul talks about two men who rejected the faith. Paul said that he had handed them over to Satan by which he meant he put them outside the church First Timothy 1.20 right there basically these men were actively opposing the works of God so rather than pretending everything was fine Paul the apostle removed them from the safety and the blessing of the fellowship of believers he was hoping that the, the misery of being separated from the church would lead them to repentance I know that's heavy, that's heavy. Are you catching the weight of that? Poor equate removal from the church with being handed over to Satan. No one likes that verse, man. <laughs> I don't even like that verse. 
being handed over Satan. That's crazy. But you know what's even more crazy? It's not the church doing that in today. It's, we live in a time where people are doing that to themselves, voluntary, on their own account. No church plays them outside the fellowship. They handed themselves over to Satan. Real love and unity and blessing are supposed to be found in the church. Many, and it's true, many have a hard time finding it there, so they set off on their own. Jesus said that the world would see the supernatural unity and love we share in the church and believe him, believe in him through that. But we're not experiencing it. We've given up on it. We no longer believe it's possible. But what if we took God's description of the church as a family seriously? What would happen if a group of people sought Jesus verbally, loved one another sacrificially, and shared the gospel boldly? And sad, but sadly, there's a lot of people that are not interested in living out loving family like this. And this next part is going to be quite hard to say. It's going to be probably harder to hear. <laughs> Ian's going to look at me probably. What if we let them live, leave? And I know it goes against all wisdom of modern church growth strategy. But this is exactly the thing that Jesus would do. While we design strategies to slowly ease people into Christian commitment and grow attendance at our services, Jesus called people to count the cost at the very start. Look at this verse, Luke 14, 25 to 35. But a bit of a big chunk, but let's go. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he, said, he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his, his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he had laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who sees it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he, would, he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the others is yet a great way away, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use for either the soil or the mer um, um, pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's Jesus talking. Mind you, Jesus did not expect his followers to be perfect, but he did demand that they be committed. Luke 9, 57 to 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, 
Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, and I mean, all these things said by Jesus can sound harsh. It is harsh. And, you know, we've, we've studied, as Gerard um, has been teaching us with how to read the Bible, you know, there is hyperbole, uh, is that right? Is that saying the right word? Which is purposeful, purposeful overstatement. And, and, you know, just because Jesus overstated something doesn't mean it's not true. And when, whenever he, he and they use hyperbole to actually make a point. It's not saying abandon your family. That's, that's, there's other verses in the Bible um, to support that. But it's saying if your priority for God is not way above um, and his, well, for God and his church is way above everything else in your life to a point where it looks like you hate all, all other things, then you, you do not love God. And that is a hard pill to swallow. And a lot of people who leave church is because they're turned off by this level of relationship, uh, relational commitment. But we can't shape the life of our church around those who might leave if things start to feel too much like the New Testament. Because Jesus did not sugarcoat anything. But he did promise that his spirit would bind us together in a way we've never experienced. Maybe we've just been so distracted and by our efforts to make our church service exciting that we hardly notice the people that the Spirit wants to unite us with. What if we follow God's design for the church and in doing so, allow the church to be pruned down to only those who want to obey His command to love one another as I have loved you? We might actually find that a pruned tree would bear more fruit. John fifteen twelve says, Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. We might discover that the branches that weren't bearing fruit were actually sucking all the life out of the tree. And don't forget, there are times where, you know, it's hard to, when, when people leave, but it is a difficult reality to face. Because there, there are times where there are going to be people who would try to take advantages of church, they are committed to love. In order to love one another like family, we need to have grace and forgiveness. However, sometimes the most loving thing to do for people is not to enable them in their sin, but to, to follow the example of Paul in First um, Timothy that we mentioned before, who separated people from the church. It is for the good of the church as well as the individuals who were removed because biblical unity is not achieved by overlooking sin, but through firm pruning that can lead to repentance. Unconditional love does not always look the way we expect. It takes tremendous love to risk rejection for the hope of loving a sinner to repentance. 
And I know this, is, this has been quite, probably quite a hard message to take. You know, I had struggled even, you know, writing it up. But I want to finish with an encouragement. You know, an encouragement, I want to define encouragement. Often we think encouragement is, you know, to produce a warm, fuzzy feeling and feel good about ourselves. When you actually look at encouragement, it's actually to, to take courage, to rise up, to encourage people to step up. And to be honest with you, and to be vulnerable for a minute, for years, I've been disillusioned with churches. I honestly do not think, I do not have the faith to, to believe that it's even possible for a church to possess the love and unity I see in scripture. And people keep saying, it can't happen in a first world country like New Zealand. And they say, you can, you'll see it in places like China, but it only works there because people already live in a community and, and because they experienced persecution that forced them to bond. But I have my doubts that these are the only reasons. It's definitely going to be harder than we expect, but it's going to be more rewarding than we could ever believe or dream because it can happen here in New Zealand too. Holy Spirit love and unity are not confined to persecuted church, uh, to persecuted countries. So if I can get the team to come back up. Just wanted us to take a moment and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us right now. You know, it's, it's his job to convict us, not my words. I probably did a poor job of trying to pass on that message. But let's take a moment to really pray. Lord, by Spirit, please highlight areas in my life that I'm just way too busy with, pursuing my own kingdom, that I have no time for your kingdom, your people. I pray that this will not be just a, a guilt trip. It's not to make you didn't come to condemn. But Father, we, we would pray that we would be challenged. We will be challenged by your word, by your Holy Spirit, to put you first, to put your people first. Over everything, not 10%, everything in our lives for the sake of your kingdom. Father, bring people around us that would keep us accountable, that would disciple us, mentor us. Pray that you also would open our eyes to people that we can do the same for. Because we are one. We are one in Jesus Christ. The Father that, that no matter what it's gonna cost us, the Father that you would get us right now to count that cost, the cost of everything. Are we willing to lay all at the feet of your cross? Not just be empty words, Lord, but the very next decision we make this week will be for you. 
So Father, I just pray that you would just bond us together more by, uh, as a family. The Father, that supernatural love, supernatural unity would happen in this church. That Lord, it would not just be one or two, but Father, all of us. That we would make a mutual commitment to one another to be a family. To love so that the world will know the Father has sent you. So Father, we just give you thanks for all you've done and all you will be doing. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.